Psalm 22 has historically been viewed as a prophetic psalm of the Messiah, a messianic psalm, if you will. When Jesus prayed from the cross, he quoted the very words of this psalm as his own. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew explains that the casting of lots for Jesus' garments took place in order to fulfill prophecy. And to support his statement, Matthew quotes Psalm 22. There is no doubt that this psalm is prophetic and points to Christ. Christ himself interpreted this psalm to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, explaining that they speak of him. Luke 24:44. These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Sadly, and contrary to the evidence, modern scholars deny that this psalm is prophetic. They simply see this psalm as nothing more than a prayer of personal lament and thanksgiving. They've even put forth an opinion that this psalm would be prayed by a priest over an individual who was sick and near death. And as the priest would pray Psalm 22, healing would be granted. And just so we're all clear here, such a view does not hold up under the scrutiny of biblical hermeneutics. And so Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, and we've entitled it the Psalm of the Cross. The Psalm of the Cross. We're going to divide this psalm into two portions. First, verses 1 through 21, and we'll look at the cry of despair. And then, secondly, we will look at the uh, remainder of the psalm, verses 22 to 31, as the consolation of deliverance. Now, the first 21 verses we're going to take, go a little deeper into, and then we'll summarize verses 22 to 31 uh, briefly. So let's begin here at the beginning of this psalm, verses 1 and 2, the cry of despair, and we're going to begin with the approach. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Now verse 1 speaks very poignantly of abandonment. The very fact that David opens this prayer by addressing God so personally communicates the great irony of the statement. Although he feels abandoned, and all those and, and those around him think he's abandoned, he still prays. See, the lamp of faith here is not extinguished in God's silence. To David, he is still my God. And at the same time, the experience of God's absence is very real to David. Nothing is happening. God is seeming not to not hear his prayer. It's almost as if his prayer is hitting the ceiling. And so he says, why are you so far from helping me? Why, and from the words of my groaning. Notice that phrase, from helping me, literally, from granting me salvation or granting me deliverance. And his groaning or his roaring like the roar of a lion. In other words, his pain is audible. The volume is all the way up and it's coming out like a roar of despair. And then verse 2 elaborates on the unanswered prayer in, in the picture of perpetual praying against the silence of heaven. And likewise, Jesus on the cross experienced the same abandonment. Now, we cannot fully penetrate the mystery of the Godhead. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, he experienced abandonment. 
Now, the many times we come to the English text and we see that word forsaken, and we assume that the father forsook, that is, wrote off, had nothing to do with Jesus, and it, it seemingly like as, as if Jesus was cut off from the Godhead. Now, let's be very clear. Jesus is not cut off here at the, from the Godhead, because if he was, he would cease to be God. And that defies the very teachings of the Scripture, uh, particularly the hypostatic union, hypostatic union, which clearly states that he remains forever the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. And so, in order to, as the man, die in our place, he couldn't just be any man, he had to be the God-man. And so, when Christ was there on the cross as the God-man, he experienced abandonment, but he did not cease being God. What was happening here was the Father was laying our sin upon his Son, and as the Son became our sin offering, he did not become sin for us. There in, um, I think it's uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 or 1 Corinthians 5.21, uh, when it says that uh, he who knew no sin became sin, uh, the Greek wording there is very clear that he who knew no sin, he who was sinless, became the sin offering. And again, that Greek word there that's, to, that's translated as sin could be better translated as sin offering, particularly in light of when we look at the um, very statement in the Old Testament referring to the sin offering in the uh, Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, the Greek translation, they translate sin offering with the same Greek word translated there in Corinthians. He who knew no sin or he who was sinless became sin or became the sin offering for us. So Christ did not become sin. He was always sinless. But like the lamb on the altar took upon the sins, the lamb didn't become sinful, but it was the sin offering, God cannot look upon sin. He has to turn his back to it. He can't look at it. So it's not a case of where Christ is no longer God or is severed, his relationship with the Godhead is severed. That's impossible. What we have a case here is he's, it's a feeling of abandonment. Okay. Now, the fact is, was he truly abandoned? No. How do we know that? Same way we know David wasn't totally abandoned. He's praying to God. So if he's praying to God, he's obviously not completely abandoned. But that's how he feels, because God can't look upon sin, so he can't exactly look upon Christ at that moment. And, and, and for Christ, it's like experiencing abandonment. And in particularly, it's how the people all around him. Remember, the people cried out, and we'll see this later in this psalm, you know, where is your God? Let him get you off the, thr let him get you off the cross, uh, you know, if, if you're really the Son of God. Again, the people totally missed the point of, of uh, the reason Christ came to be the Savior and to die for our sin. So, again, Christ did not cease to be God. What we do know from this statement is that uh, when he cried out, My God, there was still a personal relationship. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, we see here the great cost of our redemption. Jesus groaned. Literally, he roared like a lion from that cross with the agony of our sins and his seeming abandonment from the Father. And he groaned in the daytime because, listen, he was crucified. It was high noon when he, when he was uh, on that cross. And from noon till 3 p.m., he groaned in the night season as the sun was darkened for three hours. Now, verse 3 brings us to assurance. Again, we're looking at a cry of despair. We have his approach. He's approaching God in verses 1 and 2. Now we have a statement of assurance in verse 3. 
yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. David's memory goes to the character of God and his past faithfulness. God's holiness, his his separateness, and his rightful place in Israel's praise, inhabiting or dwelling in his people's worship, add to this mystery. Okay? The reality is, God's holiness causes him to be unable to look at sin. And so really what we have here is an answer as to why he has abandoned him. He cannot look upon the sin that Christ is uh, taking uh, upon himself, if you will. Verses 4 and 5 gives us the argument of his cry. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, in you they trusted and were not disappointed. See, in the past, God's people were not disappointed. They trusted, that is, they became secure and were delivered. They prayed, they received answers. They were not disappointed, they were not ashamed. Now, where are the answers in the deliverance now? The remembrance of God's holiness and his past deliverance just increases the pain. But it also serves as a reminder. Listen, God's heat, God. Here's who you are. Here's what you've done. Do it again. Do it now. That's really the heart of this prayer. And how these thoughts must have been upon the heart of Jesus as he hung there on the cross. Because he knew that it was the deliverance of his Father that would bring him through it. And yet in the pain of divine silence, the temptation was there for his thoughts to become accusations against God. And in this is is what Hebrews 2.18 talks about when it says, He suffered being tempted, and he is able to aid those who are tempted. That darkness of divine withdrawal in those moments there on the cross was Satan's final opportunity to tempt the Son of God. Verses 6 through 10, we come to the acknowledgement. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me, they separate with the lip, They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Now, folks, when we are deliberately physically, uh, or excuse me, when we are debilitated physically, it is easy for depression to set in. You know, you can get to that point if you just feel worthless. And, you know, in that sense, many can identify with verse 6, this metaphor of the, of the worm. You know, the metaphor of a worm offers a picture of lowliness. We see that uh, used that way in Isaiah 41, verse 14. See, David's lost his sense of dignity, even his somewhat his humanity. And he's vulnerable to the accusations of those around him. His suffering makes people laugh at him. There's sarcasm, excuse me, there's sarcasm, there's rejection. Uh, they're, they're holding his faith before him as a mockery. Hey, he trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. And really, what the people are saying is, look, his disease and what he's suffering from must be a sign of God's judgment. Again, here we go. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Just because someone is suffering, just because someone is going through a disease, does not mean it's God's judgment. Stop talking for God. Now, certainly any of us in that situation ought to examine, you know, why. All right, if there is, if there is sin in one's life, then, then repent of it. Confess it and forsake it. But many times, God brings suffering 
disease, trials, testings, tribulation into our life, not because of judgment, but to refine us. And so stop again and think. Before you run into somebody and want to go up to them and say, oh, you know, listen, I know, that, I know why you're suffering. I know why you're going through these problems because God's judging you. Sit down, shut your mouth, zip your lip, and meditate on what God's trying to teach you for a change. Now, this man, this worm, who felt he was no longer a man, he had no human dignity, he says, I must be rejected by God. And that was the view that, that not only he was beginning to think, but the people around him. Now, it's not difficult to see, here's Jesus hanging on the cross as we read these verses. In fact, Matthew makes exactly this connection. In Matthew 27, 39, he talks about how those who blaspheme the Lord wag their heads as they pass by. There, there were mockers, according to Matthew 27, 43, who, who cried out, he trusted in his God, let him deliver him. Again, an exact quote here of, from Psalm 22. Like David, Jesus experienced the silence of God and the scorn of people while he suffered at Calvary. These verses are fulfilled in his passion. And again, this sorrow stand, or it, it, you know, against this sorrow stands the reality of God. Even in his silence, he's still God. Even in the, in the memories of his past faithfulness, there's still hope. And while David may be experiencing a feeling of abandonment, he has a long history with God going back to his birth. He, he acknowledges that God took him out of the womb. He acknowledges that God gave him faith even before he was weaned. At birth, he was cast from the womb, not upon the earth or his parents, but upon the Lord. And so from the very inception of his life, he says, you have been my God. Again, that's, that's a statement that identifies God's continual presence and activity in David's life. And you know, when we look at the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke regarding Jesus, there's a constant affirmation of the, God's plan, God's providence, and God's power in his, in, in his son's coming into this world. The virgin birth is indeed a miraculous work. Bethlehem, the angels, the stars, the flight to Egypt, all part of God's plan. And in a very real and unique way, God took Jesus from Mary's womb and cast him upon himself. And like David, Jesus knows the deep security of a life lived before the one true God. Now let's look to verses 11 to 21 and see the appeal, the appeal in this cry of despair. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me. As a ravening and a roaring lion, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart's like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O oh, you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. Answer me. Or excuse me, you answer me. Now based upon this trust, this faith that has developed over a lifetime, David's request is simply, don't be far from me. See, it's God's distance, it's God's silence that is overwhelming him. 
because trouble is near. Now, the word trouble here comes from a verb meaning to bind, tie up, to restrict, or to cramp. And really, you know, we see here the experience of distress that Jesus was feeling during the drama of his crucifixion. He was being overwhelmed by trouble. And he adds, there's none to help. He's alone, he's abandoned. Now, we have a metaphor here about the strong bulls of Bashan. Now, Bashan was a high flat, flat area east of the Jordan, south of Mount Hermon, uh, where cattle were raised. And uh, these uh, cattle were, were wild bulls, and you get the picture of this wild bull, you know, snorting and stomping and tromping all over the place. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the, what we have this picture here, is that, uh, you know, these wild bulls, these strong bulls of Bashan are just trampling all over him, and like panting an animals whose, whose mouths are gaping open and are roaring or, uh, you know, snorting out. Really, what, what the metaphor pictures here is the people surrounding David and later the people surrounding Christ were like these bulls. They're just snorting, wild, angry animals who want to trample all over Jesus. And, and the snorting pictures the verbal abuse and assaults that they aimed at Christ. As Matthew reports in Matthew 27, 39-42, those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it up in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said he saves others. He himself can't save himself. Indeed, are these not the strong bulls of Bashan? In verse 14, David vividly describes himself as physically and emotionally exhausted. He's drained like water poured out. His bones have been separated. His head, excuse me, his heart is turned to jelly. Emotionally, physically, mentally, he is spent. He's debilitated. And that's why it comes to it, and it comes to fruition there in verse 15. His strength is like a broken, baked piece of pottery. His tongue is cleaving to the palate of his mouth. His mouth is so dry. And all this means that death is knocking at the door. Now for David, this crisis is emotional. But in light of the cross, however, we see Jesus' full pain. He's poured out like water. His blood is flowing, flowing from his wrists, flowing from his feet, flowing from his back, flowing from his head. His bones are out of joint as his body hangs on the cross. His heart has melted with pain. His strength is ebbing away. His mouth is dried up. His tongue is bloated. And in his thirst, he's offered nothing but sour wine. Death is beckoning him. And as the dust settles, the wonder of wonders is this. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Christ was on that cross because it was his Father's will. Because God loved us so much that he put his Son through that hell so that he might redeem us. Now returning in verse 16, to the enemies gathered around him, David continues with a new metaphor of dogs. These dogs prowl the street. They'll even eat human bodies. First Kings sixteen four. Remember they they ate up the bones of or ate up the bodies of uh, Jezebel. In the parallel phrase, he calls them wicked from what they do to him. And notice what David says: they pierced my hands and my feet. Now the word pierced here means to dig a round hole, to pierce. Now here's what's fabulous: crucifixion was not even invented 
when that statement was made by David. It's still hundreds of years off. And yet, in exacting detail, crucifixion gets created, and that's the very form of death by which they kill Jesus. They literally, in when crucifixion, you have to pierce the hands and the feet. He adds in verse 17, I can count all my bones. Now, from David's perspective, that's due to starvation. But, in reference to Christ being crucified, he's there hanging on the cross, and he's naked, looking down on his body. And that's why he's able to count all his bones, from the, uh, the angle that he's hanging out, and so forth. You know, he, his, the, the ribs on his sides are bulging out. The theme of the wicked assembly continues in verses 17 to 18. As David is stared at, and his garments are divided amongst those casting lots, as if he's already dead and gone. Again, this clearly fulfilled in Christ's crucifixion. The dogs around him are the Jewish leaders and the Romans' authority. They share in the congregation of the wicked. He's crucified. His hands, his feet are pierced. And from the cross, he sees his dying body in the staring crowd. And then he looks down and sees those soldiers casting lots for his garments. Matthew 27, 35. In verses 19 to 21, the tragedy of suffering is again countered. David calls upon God to intervene. He may feel forsaken, but he still prays. And his faith is far deeper, far stronger than his pain. And that's his secret. And that's why in verse 19 he can say, But you, O Lord, even in the utter hopelessness of his life, there's still the divine possibility. There's still a bit of divine hope. And so David asks, Yahweh, do not be far from me. Hasten to help me. Because why? You are my strength. And because God is his strength, he elaborates in verse 20, Deliver me from violent death. You know, when we think again of Jesus on the cross, one of his seven final words comes to mind, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23, 46. And now at the end of verse 21 comes the great reversal in this Psalms. It comes with the simple assurance, You have answered me. All of the agonized outpourings of verses 1 through 21 has reached the Father's throne. The work is done. Indeed, as John 19, 30 declares, it is finished. And so from the cry of despair, we turn to the consolation of deliverance in verses 22 to 31. Now, as I said at the outset, we're going to simply summarize these verses. But let's read them. Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in all of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard, From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. See, the response to God's intervention begins in verse 22. I will declare your name. I will magnify, I will exalt you who has delivered me. And moreover, this praise is in the midst of the assembly. This is a public witness to, his, to David's deliverance. And his witness in worship calls the, he, he calls on all of Israel to join him. 
in praising and glorifying and fearing God. Praise is boasting in God's excuse me is praise is boasting in God's character and his works. Glorifying is magnifying him by speaking of what he has done. And fearing him is being overwhelmed by reverence due to his power and his might. And here in verse 24 we've got the basis for the worship because God answers prayer. His silence is over. No longer does he turn from David. And furthermore, his enemies will be silenced by God's mighty acts. Because when he cried to him, he heard. Now, while the doctrine of the resurrection is not fully revealed here, the theme is present. God made alive, God healed, God restored, and God answered. And indeed, in his resurrection, Jesus declared the mighty works of God to his brethren, the disciples. He presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, Acts 1-3. And the Savior's witness led to the worship of his people. The disciples praised, glorified, and feared him as they fell at his feet in John 20, verse 28. See, the consequence of bringing life out of death for David embraces the whole earth as, as the nations now remember and turn or repent. They remember that God is their creator, their redeemer. They turn from their idolatry and their immorality. They renounce their sin and worship or bow down and surrender to God as king who rules over the nations. And the totality of the world's submission to Yahweh is emphasized in verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All will go down in dust. All will bow down before him. God's kingdom embraces the prosperous and the dying. All will worship him. All will bow. And these themes of worship and paying vows and feeding the poor and living forever, the nation submitting to Yahweh, the Lord's sovereign kingdom, they're all for us the benefits of Christ's passion. You see, what we have here, he jumps from his death, goes right past the, res the resurrection, right past the ascension, and goes right to his return. When, and this is where the book of Revelation fills us with all this information. The fulfillment of these final verses. The suffering of a single man, Jesus Christ, brings great blessing to the whole world. Indeed, this is the prophetic message of Psalm 22, which is fulfilled in Christ. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, we thank and praise you that you have fulfilled this psalm in your Son, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. That Father, he experienced abandonment, he experienced that hopelessness as all of our sins were placed upon him as the sin offering. And that Father, for that moment in time while he felt hopeless, he still knew he had a relationship with you. He still had a glimmer of hope because he knew that you would deliver him. Indeed, it was you, Father, who raised him from the dead. It is you who lifted him up into that third heaven and received him as the first fruit offering. The Passover lamb had died. His life was unleavened bread, sinless. And then, Lord, you, you welcomed him as a first fruit offering which guaranteed a future harvest of which we are part. I thank you, Father, for what we can learn from the suffering Savior. And Father, we look forward to that day when he comes not as a suffering servant, but as a mighty, glorious king. And we look forward to that day when he will reign and rule, and we will reign and rule with him. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.